0: All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this.
1: The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. You're not ready if it's not ready hour foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com
0: Hello and welcome to 101 Part-Time Jobs. I'm Giles Bidder and I speak to people from our favorite bands, our favourite artists about the day-to-day reality of doing the thing that we know them for, as well as finding out the things that we didn't know about them. I'm so excited to welcome Matt Osman, bassist of the seminal band Suede to take us through the early 90s, tell us how that was working out for them throughout those early years, how the band has morphed into what it is now and the new album that they're making at the moment as well as the book that Matt Osman released last year, titled The Ruins I just finished reading it, it's really great it's not what I was expecting when I I first picked it up in the best kind of magical dream-like way you're listening to 101 part-time jobs if you like this podcast please recommend it to one friend text them right now let them know that you're listening to matt Osman from suede share stories about the band and himself that you never otherwise knew about go ahead and do that it's great for the show it's great for the reviews it's great for the listening numbers it's great for me and it's great for you because in the future we can get more and more guests on i do believe that's the house cleaning done and dusted so here's Matt Osman. Thanks for listening. I feel like maybe it's, it's and maybe you can put the record straight here, but there's that kind of rhetoric, that narrative that in the 90s, so in the in Suede's formative years, that there was this kind of big money in music, uh, more so than there is today would you say that's accurate
2: oh yeah you can make a living from it you know i mean it, it's the, the two things that are very different from from now is you know if you sold some records you actually got paid uh, which was very nice and but also you know b- beforehand when the band was just starting you know um i was at college and i got a grant and you know brett was on the Dole for a while simon was on the Dole. you know you were able to kind of live however kind of poorly um, without working and it's I mean I I feel for younger bands today I keep coming across bands who've had you know what I consider hit records who are you know working in bars and stuff Um, and it was never like that at all you know it was it was um, from the moment that that we really started um, you know I I had a couple of jobs but, but really we worked at being in a band and did that allow you
0: I mean more, less financially and more like time-wise you just had the time to rehearse to to have time to sort of come up with your your ideas and your vision
2: Well I think it gave us time to 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 make mistakes you know it's kind of probably the first 50 songs that we wrote weren't very good you know we went through set after set of kind of like terrible you know kind of very smithsy things and the combination of the of the time we got from not actually being on our rappers uh and the fact that you know there was no way of of anyone hearing a young band before you know until they toured it just meant that you could you know we played so many gigs to five people and a dog um which i hated at the time but you know it's a it's it's an incredible schooling you know what i mean we learn what didn't work, and my God, there was a lot of it that didn't work. um But you know, one of the reasons why when we came along, it it did seem, I think, to a lot of people like this overnight success is is because we, you know, we we we'd made our mistakes in 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 private, well, virtually in private. sweat <laughs> gigs were virtually private. Yeah.
0: When you said you feel for young bands now, I, I completely understand from the level of everything you put out there demos there's they're always going to be online
2: somewhere yeah, terrifying you know i, mean, I really <laughs> wouldn't want any, anyone to hear the the very early stuff that we did it was terrible
0: and i have read that the, the second demo got picked up by gary crowley on a on a, a london radio station at the time was that the first big thing for you
2: oh yeah we were so excited i mean genuinely so excited it was the gary crowley demo clash and uh yeah he played like two london bands a week and 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 they were up against each other. And again, it's towering, you know, you go back and listen to the songs, and they're very, very, they're very twee. But yeah, for us, that was was huge, huge excitement. That was, you know, I mean, you were on a radio station, it was unheard of.
0: I mean, even in these sort of few minutes that we've been chatting, there are sort of two main common factors of some of my favorite British bands the fact that A, most of them were on the dole, and B, Gary Crowley played, you know, had one of their first plays.
2: He, he was he was a real supporter, you know. He was he was great, and I still see him every now and then. He's he's good friends with with an old friend of mine, so we go out every now and then. And he still has that absolute joy de vivre about new music and London music. You know what I mean? He's it's it, it's so easy to become kind of jaded and cynical about these things, but he just doesn't seem to. He seems to, you know, hear it with the same fresh ears that he did you know, 500 years ago when we were on his show.
0: So when he played you, did that, was that like a, a kick up your ass in, this, in the respect that, did you think, all right, you know, maybe we should start looking at how we're going to navigate, how we're going to sort of, it's a gross word really, but, you know, capitalise on this.
2: What can we do next? Well, I think we thought it was going to have more effect than it did, to be honest. You know, it's, it's it didn't really get us any gigs and, and that was all we really cared about at the time was, was kind of, was getting get, get, basically getting support gigs because you know no one was coming to see us on our own, so we were just constantly doing that um you know kind of badgering people for for support for support gigs i mean for a while we had um some people at yulu who were who were managing us, and that meant that we would just sneak on the bottom of of loads of bills you know teenage fan club and Empire of you know what were they called, Theatre of Dreams and all these kind of these bands. Um and we became kind of like we, we we supported everyone, you know what I mean? That that was our thing. It's been one of the things that we kind of took from it was we didn't realise at the time that, you know, for a proper tour or anything you had to pay to support these bands, which, was, which is why major label bands were were supporting kind of indie bands. So, I mean, it's one thing that we've never done. We've always just taken out support bands who we like since then, because I can remember at the time just not understanding, you know, going to see bands that we loved and seeing these terrible support acts. And then just suddenly you're kind of like, oh, right.
0: And, and looking back at that time, did you have this kind of self-motivation? Did you have a a huge amount of confidence at that time.
2: I think you kind of almost fake confidence at, at those stages, you know what I mean? Because, because no one's interested, um, you know, I mean, I, I think in a funny way, Bernard was probably the, the one with the most confidence, you know what I mean? He was, he was such a kind of prodigious talent and, and so young when he was kind of doing it that um, he was, he was kind of, he, I think he was always quite sure of his talent and, um, and I think me and Brett were, were kind of slower to it. You know, when I met Brett, he was a he was a guitarist. You know, he didn't he didn't particularly want to be a front man, and he had to, I think, learn it. And one of the things is you, you just you you can't really fake it in front of five people. That's the problem. You know, it's 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 kind of like you can be as confident as you like, but you're still going to look a dick. You know, so we almost kind of learned it along with with our audience do you know what i mean it's 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 the corniest thing but but a gig is 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 you know five thousand and five people and just five of them happen to be on stage it's all to do with the energy and the kind of will suspension of of disbelief that that you get at a gig you know the, the the way people behave so i i don't know i mean we got to the stage that I think we thought the songs were really, really good. You know, I, I, when we got to the point that we were writing things like, you know, Pantomime Horse and Metal Mickey and things like that. But I think we were thinking, OK, we're we're ahead here of, of, of the bands we're going to see. But, you know, I mean, confidence comes from, uh, you know, reaching people, moving people. That's the, the, that, that's the thing that makes you feel it.
0: Were you taking care of yourselves at the time in terms of <laughs> the organisational skills and the kind of, you know, the sort of managerial roles?
2: Um, no, we had managers. <laughs> we had a couple of managers. Um, so just the idea of taking care of anything is <laughs> is is terrifying, especially back in those days. Um, oh, yeah.
0: Any good stories with that in mind?
2: No, I, we, we were just, you know, we lived like tramps, basically. You know, uh, we had no money, and it's not like we could cook or drive <laughs> or do anything. So we lived in a kind of a series of houses around London. You know, often, you know, I lived with Bernard for a bit. I lived with with Brett for a long while. I lived with Neil for a bit. Um, we just had that kind of thing of of just not really being able to function in society, you know, especially me and me and Brett have been students. So we didn't really, you know, we hadn't had to kind of like live in, in any kind of proper way. Uh, and we just lived for, for, for gigs, really, you know, going out, trying to get into gigs for free. We had management for a while. Ricky Gervais managed us for a very short while. Um, and that was
0: before any of his comedy stuff, was it?
2: Yeah. He had his own band. He had a couple of bands, actually. He had a band called The Passion Passchendaels and then a band called Son of Bleeper, who were kind of... You know the kind of songs that he sings as David Brent's, the kind yeah. of free love on the free love highway. They were pretty much like that. You know what I mean? It's kind of... I always say to him, you know, that that those songs aren't really pastiche. They're just things he had lying around from 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 those days. Uh, we had a guy called Nadir Contractor who managed us for a while, and then a guy called John Eidman, who's, who's dead now. We kind of got through them.
0: It's funny because not many young bands have... I mean, I'm, su- I'm sure some do, but I feel like a lot of the younger guitar bands that I know don't have managers
2: now. Well, we didn't know anything about the music business. You know, I mean, that's the, that's one of the things that, that's, that's quite strange, and I kind of still feel it now. You know, we, we didn't come from those backgrounds. I didn't know anyone who made a living from music or art or theatre or anything like that. You know what I mean? Everyone That's got
0: to be quite intimidating.
2: Oh, yeah, in- entirely, entirely. You know what I mean? And, we, you know, we, we'd come up to London and, and we just had no idea. We, we had no idea how to get gigs. You know, the very early ones we did ourselves or, or friends put us on, you know, um but yeah no we didn't know any of that and and to be honest I I don't think we wanted to so so we we were always looking uh for management right from the start um because I don't know we just concentrated we were very dedicated to to songwriting once we got good at it it was like right this is what we do and then we you know we learned to write songs we learned to perform I
0: imagine that must be nice to have had that you know exactly what you said there where you know you take care of the the music you know you write the music you make the records with, with the producers your, your role there is quite well defined
2: yeah I mean but again you know back in the, back in those days that was kind of what bands did you know that, that 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 was basically the measure of success was that you didn't have to do anything else um, and it, and it happened quite quickly you know what I mean i I mean I had a job for about a year I worked in the subtitling department at the BBC. Oh, wow. and,
0: that sort of industry.
2: Uh, you, well, it really is. I mean, I was a runner basically. I, I basically went between the two buildings between between uh, the White City Building and, and TV Center because I was cheaper than than a taxi. Um, <laughs> and that was basically what I did. You know, a kind of a trained a, a trained mule would have been more efficient. <laughs> but you know, um, I quit that when. I, before we had a single out, you know what I mean. Just, but just because you had the faith. Um, yeah, and people were coming to see us, and you know, it, it was what I was going to do. It was just a case of you know that this is the time to dedicate to it, and, and like I'm saying, you know, it was it was uh, it was easier in those days.
0: What you said about the the dole and the and the student loan, it, it has changed now. I mean, I, I went to uni not too long ago, and and you know the fees are ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I mean, I still every now and then I kind of break it to 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 get like writers and and musicians that I work with that I got paid two grand a year to go to college. It, it, it wasn't just that I didn't have to pay. I mean, I got money for it and subsidized housing and all these kind of things. You know, and just and just took it for granted. Um, you know, and lots of lots lots of the early kind of ideas about what Suede was going to be was was when me and Brett were were both at college, you know, and just using that time to explore London and and to get into music.
0: So as Suede rolled on, did you did you find yourself hungry to know more about the music industry or was it the opposite?
2: No, I've got I mean I've never had a lot of interest in it. You know, it's at the heart of it, you know, there's a reason why there's two words to music industry. You know, there's, there's the music and there's the industry. And the actual industry is no more interesting, to be honest, than than kind of accountancy or something like that. It's just the parties are better. I suppose the
0: appeal to, to a fan, perhaps, who maybe doesn't know much about the inner workings is, I suppose, you know, the attraction is the you know creative control i suppose
2: yeah i mean the thing is i mean we never had really had any problems with with record companies in terms of creative control because we always knew what we wanted to do i mean generally when when you hear bands kind of complaining about you know record companies doing their videos and doing their sleeves and trying to dress them and stuff it's because they don't have any ideas of their own and we were pretty, you know, fully formed about that. I mean, we've always done our sleeves. We've always commissioned our own videos. Uh, we've never had a stylist or anything like that. I think. I think most, you know, most kind of um, interesting bands have an idea of themselves. You know what I mean? And one of the problems I've always had when when working with with kind of outsiders is they never care quite as much as you. You know, unless you get someone like a Peter Savile who's just Obsessed about what he does. You're always better off doing it yourself. You know, when when I when I came to write my first novel, one of the first things I had in the contract was that I would do the cover because I just I don't like book covers generally. And coming from the music world, that just seemed completely normal to me. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of like the idea that someone else would decide how something I made looked is is kind of anathema to me. When you
0: when you say that, you know, no one's going to do it better than you or care more than you before you, yeah. As, as you mentioned the book that says to me, you know, writing seemed like obviously now it does, but did it always seem an obvious choice of something that you wanted to do?
2: No, not really. I kind of assumed I would be a musician for my entire life. Um, You know, I, it's, it, it's kind of weird because you know, that bands split up obviously, you know, what I mean? but you're just kind of not mentally, prepared for it in any way it's like it's like when you're 20 and someone talks about death you kind of know that it's going to happen but it's it doesn't kind of loom in any way that that, that you think about and it's it the same with the band splitting up you know the band split up and I, I was immediately you know completely broke not to sort of hammer hammer in the sort of financial part of
0: it but Re- really, you actually broke. The, the, oh, the money that you get from touring was it? Oh that? God,
2: yeah. I mean, within within weeks, you know, it's kind of. Uh, we'd never been particularly good with money, and we'd had, you know, our, our accountant for, uh, for most of the nineties is in prison now. <laughs> really, give you an idea of how, how well organized we were. No, um, way. but you know, when I came to, do it, so when I came to actually working, it was like, my God, what can I? There's actually nothing I can do um so i ended up working as a journalist i ended up working as a, a writing about uh travel and arts and stuff like that for for newspapers and magazines um because in a weird way it seemed the the closest thing to to music in a sense in i can the, see that yeah that it, it you know it, it, it's kind of it comes from within you know um no you know, I mean most journalism you're work into you're working into a brief and stuff like that um but when the band got back together, I found that I missed writing that um there was something about the way it made you think about the world and the way it made you kind of understand yourself a little bit better that uh, then I started writing kind of short stories and things like that, so you know some ideas would come to me and there'd be a musical idea. Another idea would come to me and it'd be like, oh, that's a story. So, you know, I mean, if Swade had never split, if we hadn't had that decade away, I don't know whether I would have done it. I'm a, a hugely lazy person. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, generally. You know, it, it takes kind of the threat of, of, of kind of bankruptcy to get me to do something else. And I'm really glad I did. You know, there was in in a weird way. There's nothing better than that time off we had. You know, I think the band is better for it because we'd kind of just got used to it. It become almost like a job, um, which is obviously ridiculous. You know, because it's it's the greatest way to spend your time that I can imagine. You know, and it took it took time away from it to 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 realize how special it was and and and, and what it meant. Um, But also it kind of taught me that, that I could write, you know, I mean, that's one of the things we all, everyone thinks they can write. So, you know, working as a journalist and getting paid for it. Once someone said, I'm prepared to give you money for your thoughts on something," then you start thinking, okay, well, perhaps I, perhaps I can do this.
0: It might be more clearer to, you know, a fan like me rather than, you know, someone in, in your shoes, but it seems like quite an obvious choice in the way that, to, for you to to become a journalist and to be be paid for these features that you'd be doing by by the editor, because I want to write, I want to read something written by someone who I know something about. Does that make sense? You know, you see a lot of, you know, celebrity ish journalists. It around. does, but I
2: didn't really write about music, and I, I I very rarely wrote under my own name, to be honest, because you know I just I, I didn't particularly I don't want to write about music because I find it incredibly hard to write about um i'm always in in that spot that that i mean in the novel i write a lot about music because i kind of hated the way people wrote about bands and people wrote about musicians and music and the, and the life of a musician but as a journalist you know i wrote i wrote a lot like i said i wrote a lot about travel and i wrote a lot about um about art and often things that i didn't know much about just so that i could kind of explore them while getting paid for it someone once said that that there's that old thing that they always say of writers write what you know um and i can't remember who said no you should write what you'd like to know because then you're getting paid to you know find out something that, that you're interested in
0: i wonder if you're gonna write with more excitement with that as well more intrigue
2: i think so yeah you know i i think there's something there's something kind of quite um I loved writing about kind of cinema and art and stuff like that because because I hadn't gone into it deeply in my life, you know what I mean. Uh, And I quite like you know learning about these things. You know, it's this weird thing that when I was at school, I kind of hated learning. You know, I had no interest in in history or music lessons or any of these things or or English literature. You know, and and it took until I was forty to suddenly become interested in all these things. Um, it's, it's it's really strange. I mean, the school can kind of wring the joy out of anything sometimes.
0: Do you think writing about those different elements of of culture, do you reckon that was quite liberating, especially for the fact that music journalism around the time and, you know, some stuff written about in, in NME was sort of fairly shallow, gossipy bullshit?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it's difficult because I, I kind of grew up in, I guess, what was a golden age of, of music journalism, you know, and um, especially, you know, when we first started, you know, there were three national music newspapers. I mean, it seems incredible now when you think about it, how central it was to, to kind of British cultural life.
0: So enemy melody, melody Maker.
2: And Sounds. Yeah. That, that's how old I am. You know, I remember, I remember Sounds for, for the heavy metal kids. And that was good music journalism. Oh yeah, there's amazing writing. You know, I mean, I, I, I mean, truly incredible writing. You know, and, and kind of long-form journalism before it was called that. And you, you know, writing about music that, that ended up being writing about about politics and society and sexuality and, and all these kind of things. You know,
0: stuff that actually matters and makes sense and stimulates you. Yeah,
2: but you know, I, I think one of the things is that 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 was before you had any kind of access to, to musicians. So it was, they were just kind of the conduit. And nowadays, you know, every, every, every musician has a, you know, a Twitter feed and a a webpage and everything like that. So it almost cuts out a lot of that um, lack of access. You know what I mean?
0: I wonder if, you know, some of the characters in the ruins, did that, did the sort of voices and the language that you had in your mind, writing that did did any of that come from that kind of golden era of music journalism and, and, you know enemy melody maker
2: I, I don't think so really you know i mean the the, the characters the the characters are supposed are to speak how musicians actually do so they're quite bitchy and they're quite um concerned with the surface and they're quite concerned with their status and things like that um all the things that musicians pretend not to be uh normally you know what i mean yeah. I, I kind of wanted to get that kind of the sense that you have to remember that 95 percent of musicians are failed musicians um,
1: there's
2: a lot of vulnerability there yeah exactly and also that weird weird sense of am i really a musician if if i don't have a record deal and you know i don't have fans i mean what am I? Is it the same thing? It's it's one of the the very weird things about, about writing a book is that until you're published, you could call yourself a writer, but I mean, are you? I don't know. I really don't know. It's one of the reasons I didn't tell anyone I was writing because it was like, I'd come across so many people who were like, oh, I'm writing a book, I'm writing a novel. And then you never heard of it again. And it, it I don't know, it, it almost felt like a that I had to get some validation before before I could even say it, and you know, I just I, I had no idea whether it was going to be any good. That's the, that's the other thing. So I did think I'll write it and then um, I'll try it out on a couple of people whose opinion I trust, and if they don't like it, then I'll just pretend it never happened, so that I don't have this this huge blot on my CV. <laughs>
0: Do you, do you think your your identity throughout all of that? Do you think that was helped by having a brother in in the similar you know entertainment industry?
2: What in writing the book?
0: Yeah, just in the way you, you know because you have him to bounce ideas off to to chat to. I mean, are you, are you close? Are you good mates?
2: Well, weirdly, he did exactly the same thing as me. He he didn't tell anyone he was writing the book. So literally, we had a conversation when we were both kind of ninety five percent done. He just—I was, was just chatting to him one day, and he said, "Listen, I'm—I'm I'm writing a novel." And I was like, "Oh God, so am I." <laughs> um, and it was—it was a very, very strange experience. So we, we kind of swapped novels when they were pretty much done before we both had publishers. But but when we were kind of, we thought we were finished with it, and it was—it was genuinely terrifying because it was like, first of all, what if it wasn't any good, which would be terrible. And and secondly, what if they were really similar? I'm not sure which I was more frightened of. Did you think there'd be a risk of the latter? Well, yeah, we have the same background. We're from the same place. We have the same voice. Uh, we have very similar opinions on on a lot of things. You know, I mean, I, I kind of we both work in, you know, creative industries and stuff like that. Yeah. I was terrified that, that, that we'd end up writing the same thing. (laughs)
0: That's hilarious. And his
2: would be much, much more successful. You know what I mean? That's kind of, it's a, it's, it's, it's a worrying thing. I, and I just got a message from him about halfway through where he said, it's hilarious how different these books are.
0: Oh, brilliant. That must've been nice.
2: It was really good. You know what I mean? I mean, his is a very traditional whodunit. I mean, it's, it's, Brilliantly done. It's very funny and the voices are are really good. And he's so good on kind of uh, middle England and older people, the kind of people that don't normally get written about. Um, But yeah, mine's much more florid and wandering and kind of obsessed with sex and drugs and rock and roll, unsurprisingly.
0: What's the story of linking up with Repeater? Figuring out the the logistics of it. Had had you started? Did did you send them a, a transcript to begin with?
2: You know what? It it went the longest way around. Tarek, who who owns Repeater, runs Repeater, is a really old friend of mine. Um, he's a, he's a wonderful novelist, uh, and I think Repeater's a, a fascinating publishing house. You know, in the midst of kind of industry wide crisis. They publish a ton of books, and they do really well, and they're really brave about who they publish. Um, so when I finished the book, he was the first person I sent it to, not to have it published on Repeater, but I wanted. I sent it to him and just said, "Look, just tell me, is it okay?" <laughs> you no, know, no, but yeah, no, yeah. I can't explain how hard it is to see something that you've written like that through kind of a, another person's eyes and i know that. i've known tarek for a long time and i trust him and i was just you know and if he'd said to me it it's just not very good then i th- i probably just would have done nothing with it so he read it and he kind of came to my house um <laughs> and it was weird we had a couple of drinks we had a lot of drinks because it's tarek and he said, right, I'm going to tell you everything that's really good about the book. And he went through a whole load of, of, of really, really lovely points and, and made me feel quite good. And then the next day when we were truly hungover, he was like, right, now I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong with your book. <laughs> and we sat there for like two hours and he kind of tore it apart. But at the end of it, he said, look, I, I'd like to publish it. Brilliant. And I said, no, <laughs> because... He was an old friend of mine, and and also because I wanted to make sure that he was right, that it was any good. So I went through the whole process. I got an agent. It uh, went out to lots of other publishing houses. I got off- offers from other people. Um, and it was only then, when I started talking to other publishing houses, that I realised uh, how much I liked what Repeater would we're doing so for example repeater we're happy if it only came out in paperback i find the whole hardback thing just ridiculous i've never really understood it it's quite expensive isn't it it is and you know it's 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 so weird because you know with 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 records it's fine i've kind of made my peace with with the idea of you know limited editions and uh, you know, expensive expensive editions with pictures and stuff like that. But the, the deal with them is they're all released at the same time. So you get the one that you want. Um, but with publishing, it's this weird thing that the, the hardback comes out and you have to buy it if you're interested. And then the cheap proper one comes out six months later. So they were, I mean, straight away, they were kind of like, we can do a, a hardback, but we don't really believe in them. And, and I said to them, look, I want to do, I want to do the cover myself. I don't really I, – I love their cover designers, but it's just – it's something I wanted to do. And they were just like, oh, that's fine. I mean, they'd done it before. Weirdly, they, they, they did um, Terence Stamp's autobiography, um, which is fantastic. It's really, really fascinating. But um, none of the big publishers would, would do it because he said he wanted his own cover, this weird mosaic thing. Um, so it's, it it's, it's a strange thing. So yeah, I went all the way around the houses and if, if I just said yes on that first day, it would have saved me six months <laughs> and, and commissions and all those kind of things. But, you know, I had to, I think I had, had to check that someone else would, would have bought it anyway.
0: I feel slightly guilty for, for laughing when you say, you know, you, you give it to someone else just to make sure it's, you know, okay. But I guess what that really shows me as well is this kind of, fascinating element of having this huge amount of discipline and belief and vision or ideas whatever you want to call it but at the same time balancing that out is this total awareness that what you're doing you know you're not you know is it is it good you know and i wonder if that's very very similar to to writing music
2: <laughs> it's so much easier with music it it really is because because you do it song by song, and you know sometimes a song can be written and recorded in two or three days, and you can play it to people, and you can alter it. You know, it's you know, songs get remixed and all these kind of things. That it's always a work in process and progress, and the, and there's always kind of you're always fiddling with it. And there's five of us in the band, you know, so it's kind of it's a collaborative process. Um, the thing with the book is, you know, th- there are days when you're a hundred thousand words in and you've been working for two years and you just think well, it's just just not very good. You know what I mean? You
0: got no one else to say, actually, nah, nah, it is good.
2: Yeah, totally. You know, it's 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 quite a lonely process, and I've got so much respect for people who do it on their own or who do it without. Another creative outlet, you know. I mean, like I said, I, I could afford to kind of do it, and if it didn't work, then I'd just go back to being a rock star. You know, it's not it's not the hugest um uh, the hugest problem. But I work a lot now with with, with kind of writing classes with, with with young writers and new writers, and you know, they're writing. Some of them have got kids, so they only write once the kids have been put to bed you know, and at weekends, or they're at school, you know, and they only get to work at the weekends. And I've got so much respect for people who put in those long hours for no reward, you know, often for kind of like two or three years. You know, it's, it, it, it's really hard work, and it's, it's every time I see – nowadays, every time I see a new book, I just think, my oh God, that was, that was two years of someone's
1: life.
0: I think that about records as well. You know, I think, you know, I'm listening to this thing and I'm getting out of it this particular, you know, certain amount of feelings, but that'll be nothing on everything that went into this record. And, you know, probably more so with a book.
2: Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, I mean, the good thing about making music is is when it's really good, it, it tends to be quite easy. And there's something, one of the things is because it's so much easier to second guess yourself with writing. Because because music is – the weird thing is the thing you use to talk about writing and think about writing is words. So it all gets kind of jumbled up. The nice thing about music is it's a language of its own, and it either works for you or it doesn't. So a lot of time with writing, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm not sure if this is – does this work? Whereas with music, it's usually you just listen to it and go, no, that's wrong. Or yeah, this is the one. Um, I don't know. I think it's much less um, instinctive. I think w- with the writing.
0: In the in the in the sort of in the decade off from from the band, was there anything that brought you anything close to the fulfilment of being in the band? And now looking back on it, and with hindsight, you know the kind of fulfilment that you might get from from writing a, a book. Did you get that from journalism?
2: No, I don't think I did, actually. I mean, the weird thing is, I, I, one job I did is I did a a, a London guidebook. Yeah, Le Cool. Yeah, um, and we we wrote a guidebook, and there was kind of like 30 of us, and, and hardly any of them were from London originally. And I must admit, I absolutely loved that. I loved just wandering London, finding interesting places, talking to people there. Um, I, I, I do love this city, you know, and it constantly... It constantly surprises me and constantly, you know, excites me. And I still, you know, a rainy day in Soho is is, is bliss to me. Um, and I, I can remember thinking at the time, oh, you know, if you're going to do something else, this, this is quite good. But then, you know, when we got back together and the first time we played, when we played at the Royal Albert Hall, there was a couple of moments when I was just like, God, there really isn't, much like this. There's nothing quite, the immediacy of it and the physical nature of it, just the, the feeling of people singing a song back to you, the feeling of uh, just making a real racket, is it's pretty good. One of the things we said to ourselves after that gig was, we have to make sure it's, it's special like this every time we play. You know, and it's one of the reasons we don't play as much as we used to uh, we don't tour as much. We don't go as far because I'm loath to let it become humdrum.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it would just be cruel to never let yourself, you know, feel that high again.
2: Yeah, and but, but to be honest, having, having the time off is what made it special. You know, I mean, one of the things is that, it's like I was saying before. You don't really understand that these things can end, that that they can break. You know what I mean? It's it's like, it's like it's like the time your first relationship ends. You know what I mean? And you just can't and,
0: think of what you could do when it does.
2: Yeah, and you just didn't really understand. You know, there was some stupid bit of you that just thought this is forever. You know what I mean? And. What it means is, it's, I don't know. Every time, every time we play now, I have in my head, you know, it might be the last time. I mean, who knows what happens? You know, kind of like people get ill, people fight. You know, it's 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 really important to to understand that that these things are, are fragile, you know. And I I feel it with the writing as well. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of important to make it to make it sing a little because. I mean, you just don't have that long, you know, in terms of records, in terms of books, in terms of relationships, you know, you just, there aren't that many. I mean, one of the things that, that I love is is that reading now and, and listening to music, there's the same thing. If, I, if I'm listening to something that's good or, or okay, I can kind of listen to it as a musician and kind of pick out the bits that are good and pick out the things that are worth stealing and pick out the mistakes. And it's the same, the same with reading. You know, it's kind of like, oh I see what they did there. But the but the masterful stuff, the really good stuff, it's just it's unknowable. You know what I mean? When when I hear a Grace Jones nightclubbing or I read Cavalier and Clay, I've I've no idea how they do it still. You know, I just I, I read it and I listen to it like a fact like a teenage fan just going oh my god this is magic how do they do that
0: and you were you were in the studio in february this year i was reading
2: yeah we we, we were touring and we and we started writing for for a new record yeah
0: tell me tell me about that when did that start how did the what were the beginnings of of, of those sessions
2: uh, we were, we we're always writing i mean we, we we're kind of always writing and um and the idea was that we were going to be Uh, touring a lot this year. Actually, we had lots of festivals lined up uh, and we were going a few places that we hadn't been for a long time. There were gigs in Australia and South America. Um, So we we had an idea that we were going to road test a whole load of new songs, which we don't normally do. Um, But we we wanted to make a really kind of live record. So we thought, right, we'll, we'll get a couple of songs written kind of like quite, Loud, punky, straight-ahead things, and uh, and just bash them into shape on the road. Um, and then, of course, COVID happened, and uh, we haven't played a gig since oh God Pattaya in February.
0: Wow! And you haven't been in the studio either.
2: We've been in and out. Yeah, we've we, we've done some demoing and stuff. I mean, the nice thing is that that the studios are empty. So uh, the rehearsal room that we use, we we had the whole building to ourselves for a while. So we've got a record pretty much ready to go, pretty much ri- written. You know, we were our own little bubble all over the summer. But I mean, what we do with that when when there are no gigs coming up is is I don't know
0: given all the time that you've had you mentioned earlier i mean we we we've been jumping around timeframes a lot but you know working at working doing the le cool thing the, the the london guide what parts of london really stuck out for you i mean i live in deptford and i only over the last couple of years have i learned how amazing the history is here
2: oh deptford's fascinating yeah yeah it's really interesting um i i love the river to be honest i, lo- I love the thames um, I really like kind of um, places like the the North Bank of the Thames by the city, where you've got these incredible kind of like skyscrapers and you know the the um, you know people are making billion dollar uh, deals on one side, and then you walk down and you can just walk onto the the foreshore there, and you can pick up old bottles and kind of Victorian money and 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 come kind of buttons and stuff I, I i love the way this this kind of you know, the river kind of that washes old london through the new i like richmond a lot i love soho I, you know still it still has just that slight air of 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 danger to it and i just love the way it changes every single week you know what I mean? It's it's almost like a, a show. You know, you go down there and, and there's something new. There's some new cuisine that you've never tried. I
0: often feel like I maybe missed out on you know, quote unquote, real Soho. I work at Soho Radio now as a freelance producer, so I'm in there all the time. But you know, I grew up going to gigs at the Astoria and Mean Fiddler too. Yeah, and that, and that was a ve- that was so special, you know. And I don't think that I'm looking looking back with you know too rosy glass. You know, too much rose tinted glasses thinking that there, there was a real period of time there and i feel like i you know and that was in the early 2000s so i wondered through the 90s you know
2: i mean what, I think, what was that like i think it's i think it's just that sense of having an entire world at your doorstep you know what's happened with with the way gigs have gone and and everything the way sports and shopping and all these things it's it's all these kind of megaplexes in the suburbs, and the thing about Soho was it was you know you could spend the entire day there. You could, you could breakfast there and shop for records there and buy clothes there and go for drinks there and go clubbing. Uh, and you walk the whole way, and anyone who was interesting in London was, was going to be there. You know, I I I like that sense. I like the sense of a centre to town. You know what I mean? The the kind of the bullseye of a city. Totally. One of the one of the reasons why I wanted to write about London and LA in in the ruins was because I you know I was writing about twins, and I always think of as them as the the two most opposite of the of the western cities. You know, London is kind of it's convoluted and it's dirty and you have to walk everywhere and it's unknowable. Um, and then you go to LA and it's, you know, it's laid out on a grid and you have to drive and there's mountains and beaches and you know what I mean? Kind of wildcats and stuff. So yeah, I just, I love the, I love the sense of of there almost being kind of like a town center. I mean, I grew up in, in, in a satellite town. I grew up in, in Hayward's Heath. So London was always calling to me. And then when you get to London, it's kind of Soho is, is, is kind of like the centre of it. It just, it, it, it feels like the centre of the world. And I, I'm sure if you live in, you know, New York, you, you think the same thing about Greenwich Village, you know. And if you live in Tokyo, you think the same thing of Roppongi. You know, it's, it just felt like where it was at.
0: So I mean, all the production companies are still based there as well.
2: Yeah, no, I love that. You know, I I, I love the fact that that, that, it, that you know, London's a working city. It's not. It's not like Paris. You know, it's not. It's not particularly pretty. Um, I, but I love the fact that it's a working city, and that, you know, if you if you ask people why did you come to London, because no one's from London. You know what I mean? They all came here. Um, and you say why did you come here, and th- they came here to work. You know, it, it might be music, it might be art, it might be finance, but I kind of, I quite like the fact that it's a, it's a city where people come to to get on. It just means this this there's a kind of energy to it, and a kind of you know everyone's always climbing the ladder. I quite like that. You know, I'm I'm sure at some point I will succumb like all musicians to the lure of the countryside, but 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 not yet.
0: Amazing. Well, Matt, it's been a total pleasure hearing about you know hearing these stories. I
2: mean, really. Oh well, I'm glad they were interesting to you, Charles.
0: No, no, no I love them. I mean, it makes me think now that you're you know, do you see yourself as, a, as an established author? Because I mean, I certainly do. And I wonder if how how do you see yourself moving forward in terms of making records and, and writing books? Are they are they fairly you know two channels that you, you imagine will will go? together you know together. yeah
2: totally I mean one of the things about lockdown is I've been I've been writing a lot you know I've been I've, I've kind of finished a book of short stories and I'm kind of three quarters of the way through a novel um and there's a suede record uh pretty much done and some music of my own um the weird thing is that that they it all kind of feeds into each other I think. I I thought, oh, will there be enough time to do to do both? But it's it's almost like that they just every time I'm you know every time I make a piece of music, it's kind of like suddenly there's ideas for the book, and every time I'm writing, I'm something like, oh, there's something musical in this. So yeah, I, I, I the the two of them together are perfect for me. You know, it's kind of writing's too solitary. I couldn't do it if it was just that. But the thing with music is, is you know, you don't get your own singular vision. So, you know, at the moment, having the two is, is a really nice combination.
0: Is it, do you have any sort of tricks that you have, like, you know, habits to to how you're writing? I mean, do you use notes on your phone?
2: Yeah, I mean, I carry a notebook with me everywhere. A real, um, a real life notebook that you're writing with a pen? I have, I have I'm sitting by a pile of, about 60 notebooks because I like to write lots of stuff out longhand because it just it reads slightly differently if you write it, especially when you're kind of half asleep is when, for me, is when interesting ideas happen.
0: Middle of the night stuff
2: or? Early in the morning or just dropping off to sleep. You just, you're in that kind of weird, slightly, logic has slightly gone askew. Um, and that's when, for me, it's when kind of like those kind of, the, the odder, more interesting ideas, um, happen, but, but, you know, yeah, I have lots of tricks. I, I, I try and write 2000 words a day, even if they're not any good. Um, I learned very quickly that that bad writing is better than not writing. Um, that you learn something from bad writing, um, uh, that, that's better than, than not doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's one I understand. of the reasons why I, I work with, a, with, like I say, with a, with young writers quite a lot. And I'm always saying to them, you know, just write something, mm-hmm. write, write a one page story. You know, it's kind of, if you're blocked, then, you know, just r- write something else, but don't stop and go and play on your phone, which is what I do. You know what I mean? It's kind of, I'm I'm terrible procrastinator. Um, so I have to force myself to do these things and then, you know, halfway into it, suddenly I'm kind of like, ah, that's what I should be writing.
0: (laughs) I, I was just thinking then you must be, you know, by, by teaching it, you're probably learning yourself.
2: Oh yeah. It's been amazing. You know what I mean? I do, I do these little online classes completely free where we just write for an hour on our own and then we just chat about how it's done just because you need some, or I need someone to keep me honest
0: how can people find out about this people who are listening to this
2: uh if you follow if if you follow me on twitter i do it every thursday and i uh, always do the the link to it um, brilliant um but yeah it's as much it, it is as much for me you know and also i mean one of the things is i don't know any writers yeah i mean the thing about being a musician is it's incredibly social you know you're meeting other musicians at, at festivals and studios and rehearsal rooms and all those kind of things so you know 90 percent of my friends are, are kind of involved in the music business but but writing's really solitary and I kind of sought out other writers just because um I th- I'm always happy to talk about writing uh, and I don't know any you know one of the, the things about COVID which has been a real shame is I was booked in to do loads of literary festivals and i was quite looking forward to it
0: do you have any news on the um do you you have any plans for the the book of short stories is there at least a release date for that
2: no i might i might i might release it for free on on my website i'm constantly frustrated by uh the slowness of the publishing industry it takes like a year to do literally a year to do anything me and my brother were just constantly on the phone to each other going so when's yours coming out 18 months um so I, yeah I might I might do it that way and and and, and just take a loss on it because because um, I'd like to have another novel out next year and I don't want them to kind of collide with each other and then there's the suede record so yeah yeah hard, so.
0: and you kind of generally stay out of the marketing of 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 the book and the way that industry
2: works um I I try and be a little bit involved for the simple reason, as I was saying before, it's I care about it more than 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 most other people. You know what I mean? And again, it's it's that thing. You know, it's as so many writers I know they hate the cover of their book, uh, and it's just because they didn't have the courage to 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 fight for it you know what i mean i mean sometimes there's nothing you can do about it but you know it's kind of like i've got so many friends who you know if they're if they're a female writer they suddenly find themselves with a book with a pink cover uh or if there's a crime in it suddenly it's a you know a man in a trench coat walking down a rainy street you know and it's just it's so dispiriting so yeah i try and get as involved as i can really
0: Brilliant. I think that's such a positive note, especially now that we live in a world where we, we can self-publish if we wanted to, and we, we can self-release.
2: It, uh, totally, totally. You know, it's, it, 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 there's a weird kind of snobbiness about it, and I think it's much harder to promote if you self-publish. But the publishing industry is such a closed shop. It's people of a certain background, generally. Um, that I'm all for self-publishing. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm thinking of doing some stuff on my own. It's not because I can't go through the publishing industry. It's just because I think it would be nice to show that there's no real difference in quality between something that I published with, uh, you know, a publishing house, or something I published myself, or you know, those kind of things.
0: Great. Well, Matt, again, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming. No, it's lovely to see you, Charles. Brilliant. Okay, well, have a lovely rest of
2: your day. Fantastic. And you.
0: So there was Matt Osman, a lovely chat. Thank you so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this show, like I asked at the beginning, please do tell a friend. It's a completely independent show. I'm making this with some secondhand bodged up gear as well as a few Christmas prezzies and I'm really enjoying doing it and I want to continue. So, you know, I'm not afraid to ask for your help to keep it happening. You know, thank you so much. Again, please leave a review if you have time. Here's Cox
2: I've been working all day for me
1: mate on the side, running around like a blue ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me mate. Every bloody minute I've been on the go, up and down the ladder like a freelancer
2: bow I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for
0: me mate. This is a Mighty Moon
1: Media podcast.